the one and only Cliff Richard and the Shadow. Hi, this is David Ghosty Wills, and welcome to episode 26 of the We Say Yeah podcast. A monthly, unofficial Cliff Richard and the Shadows fan podcast where we review and discuss every single EP and LP in what seems like real time. Our guest this month is lifelong Shadows fan and a moderator for the Shadow Music Message Board, George Geddes. But first, I promised that we'd catch up on some emails and comments regarding our last two episodes, so let's dig in. Widow left a comment on the Apple Podcasts reviews. By the way, please review the show. Give it as many stars as you see fit, but please review the show on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts because that really boosts the visibility of the show. I think we have 24 reviews, something like that. But this is from Widow who writes, Loving these podcasts. Been a Cliff and the Shadows fan for over 30 years, and listening to these podcasts, I'm learning a whole new Cliff and the Shadows. Keep up the great work, Ghosty. I totally agree with you and Darren about the backing singers. Theme for a dream has become a nightmare. Matthew sent an email to we say yeah podcast at gmail.com, and he writes, First of all, I am really enjoying the podcasts. I moved away from the Shadows and Cliff for a number of years as it wasn't cool, in quotes, but at 52 years young, I'm rediscovering my love for them through your podcast, and quite honestly, to hell with cool. I so look forward to your podcasts coming out each month. Thanks so much for that. I started with the one on Tony Meehan and Jet Harris and then worked forwards, but recently I had a long road trip, so I binge listened to the first few to catch myself up. So much info and so many tracks that I didn't know anything about. Episode 25 really resonated with me. I was born in 71 and didn't really get into Cliff and the Shads until the later 70s, early 80s. My brother is 18 years older than me, and he introduced me to Cliff and also John Denver and the Monkees, similar to your guest. It was my dad, he was 48 years older than me, who introduced me to the Shadows when he brought me the 20 Golden Greats album and then the Shadows' Silver album. He told me, this is proper music. So at secondary school in the UK as a teenager, when all my peers were listening to UK and US 80s pop, I was learning Cliff and Shad's tunes. What did I say about being uncool? However, I found a friend who was also into the Shadows, and we formed a Shadows cover band and played at my school in 1986. I got to be Hank Marvin, and my peers loved it. At our leaving ceremony, we played Cavatina, and the girls were in tears. Anyway, enough waffle. To my point, I've noticed that when you do comparisons on your show of early Cliff and Shad songs with U.S. recorded ones, sometimes the same tune, sometimes a similar sounding one, have you noticed how much brighter the EQ is on the Abbey Road recorded tracks? The vocals always sound so sibilant in comparison. I wonder if Malcolm Addy or other peeps at the studio thought U.S. tracks were too dull. Or perhaps it was different tape formulations. NAB versus CCIR? Or mastering slash remastering? I don't really notice until you do a comparison. This is an interesting question and one that I do not know the answer for. Malcolm Addy, if you're out there listening, please get in touch. <laughs> we'll find out. I do always mention how great these records sound. I mean, they sound as if they were recorded yesterday to me. I, I just think they sound marvelous. Steve also sent me an email, and I'm going to read a portion of it here. He says, I noticed there's been a lot of discussion over Sleepwalk versus Midnight from various guests. My favorite, like you, has always been Peace Pipe as a slow number. It was the first tune I ever played in public at our youth club in 1969. 
you probably won't get to my all-time favorite, The Lost City, written by Russ Ballard of Argent fame, until I am well into my 70s. This is true. I always say, eat your vegetables, folks. we got to be here for a long time. However, the mention of the Levi's 501 advert using a Cliff in the Shadows release prompted me to write and say about Sleepwalk being used for the closing credits of the first series of the anti-superhero TV show The Boys, starring Carl Urban and Simon Pegg on Amazon TV. This is news to me, folks, as I break in here. I never heard of this show. I don't keep up with TV, so I had no idea this was going on. Being a U.S. production, I would have thought the Santo and Johnny original would have been chosen. Interesting. You know, I have to tell you, for a few years, I worked as a music supervisor on a television program, and my job was to find songs that we could get for a lower price (laughs) than other versions of songs and put them in the show and they would be authentic enough to work with the scene. And whoever is doing this for Cliff and the Shads is doing a bang up job, obviously, because now we've got two instances of songs out of the blue being used uh, for television, a commercial and also a TV show. Mark J. Daniels over on Facebook writes, A truly remarkable episode 24 with the legend himself, Bruce Welch, a great track-by-track breakdown mixed in with some interesting facts and incredible stories. Big thumbs up, Ghosty, for a great show, and to Jim Nugent who helped in achieving this major coup. Indeed. Thanks so much, Mark. Tim Cooper writes, Thanks, Ghosty, for another interesting and varied podcast. After listening to Paul Westwood's story about his sister handing Cliff a picture towards the end of the official Two Hearts video, I had to play it again to see it. I realize this era is a couple, or maybe more, years away from your podcast, but I do love this video as it does show what the audiences were like in the early 90s in those big arenas which Cliff used to always sell out. Thanks so much, Tim. I'm going to do my best, folks. I gotta, I'll got i be 90 years old doing this podcast. I wanted to jump over to Twitter because I rarely read those comments. I know Twitter is now called X. I think that's going to be temporary, but we're, for these purposes, we're going to refer to it as Twitter. That guy, Sai, writes, I'm loving this podcast. As someone in their 30s, I love the music, and I'm familiar with a lot of Cliff and mainly the Shadows material, but there's a lot of history behind the songs I did not know. A great resource. Thank you. Danielle writes, congrats on the podcast. Two years, very good show. Thoughtful questions and entertaining comments from Bruce Welch. Loved Bruce saying, Cliff was the biggest star in the country by far. Thank you, Danielle. Michael writes, another great podcast, Ghosty. Make sure you take Bruce up on his offer when you're in London. Yeah, you know, the plan is still to go to London the first week of November and see Cliff in concert. I also bought a ticket to see Marty Wilde. I figured why not do that while I'm there. But now there's some drama attached to this trip. Here's the story. I never had a passport in my life. So I applied a few months ago, sent off the necessary paperwork and photos, and when the, when the passport finally came back, the U.S. government, in their infinite wisdom, got my birth date wrong, which is remarkable because I literally sent them a copy of my birth certificate. I mean, you'd have to be incompetent on an almost supernatural level to screw that up, and yet somehow they did. So I wound up having to fill out another form for a correction. I guess it'll add a little excitement to the podcast over the next few months. You know, has the new passport arrived? Has the date of birth been corrected? Will I be allowed into the UK? Find out next month. All right, on to this month's podcast, covering the Foot Tapping with the Shadows and Los Shadows EPs. 
along with the Shindig single with our guest George Geddes. Um, for the first time ever, I need to put a disclaimer before this interview. For this show and for the next few shows, we're going to be discussing songs with titles in languages other than English. I just want to warn you up front that I am horrendous at pronouncing words in Spanish and in French. I should be great at it because I've lived most of my life in the New York City area, and that's a melting pot of different cultures, and you hear different languages all the time. But I have no talent or ability to pronounce words that are not in English. So my apologies in advance to anyone from these countries who may be listening and thinking I'm trying to be funny or I'm trying to sound like Jerry Lewis or something as I stumbled over the Flavenhoven lady. I'm not really. I'm genuinely that bad. And one more disclaimer, I was just getting over a cold when I recorded this conversation, so please excuse any coughs or throat-clearing sounds. All right, let's get started. I began our discussion by welcoming George to the program and asking him that now familiar question, how did you discover the music of Cliff and the Shadows? Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, it so happens that the other night I was listening to Jim Nugent's contribution. Uh, Jim and I go back about 30 years. And although there's an age difference, we obviously hit the shadows thing around about the same time. Uh, I was fortunate in that there was always music in our house when I was growing up because my dad was a trained organist and made a piano initially and then latterly an organ in the house. So there was always music. Mm. I listened to a whole range of, of different kinds of music. And my first real interest was film music, film and television music. And I've still kept that going. I did an adult education class, ran that at the beginning of the year on music and the movies. So the interest is still there. But when I went to secondary school, my school was in the centre of the city, centre of Glasgow. And sometimes I would take the bus straight home and sometimes I would wander into the centre of town and do a bit of window shopping. And there was a big department store there called Lewis's and part of their basement was devoted to the record department. And I went in there for a, a look around and one of the things I saw, they had these bins that displayed singles face out and I saw this single called the Frightened City. Ah. And I knew that was a piece of film music. So I bought it and took it home. And literally that was it. That was the sound that changed everything. I became a massive Shadows fan after that. I think it was Pete Townsend who said that it's a passion that he's never lost. And that was the same with me and people like Jim. It was a passion that we've just never lost. And it was all because of that one 45 that I happened to pick up. Uh, it also gave me a lifelong passion for Fender Stratocasters. The record passion is a bit cheaper than the Fender Stratocaster passion, I can <laughs> tell you that. Uh, so that, that was where it started for me. Uh, and I collected, even through the, the, the Beatles and the Northern Sound, all that, I was still passionately collecting my Shadows singles and albums. And uh, I wasn't really that bothered about what else was going on musically. I was aware of it, but to me, I've just never lost that, that, that thing about the shadows. And I do lament for younger listeners 
I do lament that they're never going to have the experience of going into a store that kind of sold everything, but they would have a floor or a huge section devoted just to records, which was just glorious. You know, it was the, it was, in fact, I would say the record department was sort of the internet of its day. You know what I mean? It's where everybody sort of came together and exchanged information. Yep. And you would go and ask to hear a new single and go into the little booth or whatever like they had and they would play it for you. And these kind of moments, you just don't forget. Hmm. And then when you move on to things like EPs and LPs, and that's almost completely gone now because you don't have the sleeve notes on streaming or downloads that you have on uh, on LPs and even in CDs. That you, and I became one of those inveterate note readers from, from a record collection. I could tell you where something was recorded. Probably couldn't tell you now, but, you know, and read the sleeve notes. Oh, Nori Paramore uh, wrote the sleeve notes for this album and all that sort of thing. And that's lost uh, along with the physical item. Well, you mentioned EPs, and the first release we're going to talk about is an EP from The Shadows, Foot Tapping with The Shadows. And on this program, I try to cover all of the EPs that are unique. In other words, there are many EPs where it's just two sides of two singles back to back. And that's not creative enough, really, for our discussions because we've already talked about those singles. But in this case, you kind of have with this release... Here are songs credited <clears throat> to just the shadows that appeared on Summer Holiday, and you don't have to buy the Summer Holiday album if you don't want it. That was, yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. When this came out, I was 16, and you know, I'd seen Summer Holiday, I don't know how many times, but did I want to buy the LP and listen to Orlando's Mime and the other kind of uh, right. set piece dance numbers? Not really. I wanted to hear the shadows. And that's why this was attractive. Of course, I think probably most of the people who listen to this will know the story about Foot Tapper, which was that it was originally written for the French actor, comedian, film director, Jacques Tati, who had met the shadows at the Paris Olympia. Uh, And he said he wanted them to write a piece of music for one of his films. And what they came up with was Foot Tapper. Uh, and then they never heard any more from Jack Tatty. So when they needed a little bit of instrumental background music for Summer Holiday, and it's only, I mean, it's, I think it's supposed to be played on a radio in the background. It's a very small fragment. Right. To me, the two great parts of that movie uh, are the scene in the, uh, the club in Paris where they play round and round and lay girls because that you got more or less the full number. So that, that that was the really important stuff. But obviously, they re-recorded Foot Tapper. It's not the film version that became number one. It was a re-recorded version. But the interesting thing was when they put this EP out, it was the film version that they used. <laughs> Yeah, 
again, you know, here are the songs as they appear on the Summer Holiday soundtrack. So I guess it's, you know, you probably, if you were somebody who bought the single and you loved the single and then you found out there was a different version, you, you were probably curious. That person <laughs> no. was me. Right. So let's talk about the tracks that are on here. We've already covered yeah. these songs in, in other episodes. We can go through them quickly. And I'll just get your opinion of track one, Atlantis. <laughs> Yes, Licorice Locking's favourite Shadows number that he was on, actually. Uh, it's Jerry Lord, and I mean, Jerry Lord had wrote some of the greatest guitar instrumentals of all time, and Atlantis is one of them. It, uh, the interesting thing is we're here at the kind of cusp of the Northern Sound, the Beatles revolution, and here are the Shadows still making number two in the charts with a very classic Shadows track, Atlantis. Uh, I, I just think it's a super number. It's well up in the, uh, the Jerry Lord and pantheon of great, great instrumentals. Well, speaking of that Beatles revolution, you can definitely hear the echoes of that on the next track, I Want You to Want Me. Anytime you're feeling low And you've got no place to Ah, well, uh, it's actually, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good pop vocal. Again, what people sometimes forget is that the Shadows from day one, when they were the Drifters, were a vocal instrumental group. Mm -hmm. Bruce has always said that he and Hank wanted to be the Everly Brothers. Right. You know, they wanted to do the two-voice two harmony thing. So vocals were always a part of the repertoire. They were always a part of the recorded material that they did, that they were always a part of the stage act. Uh, I don't think the song itself is particularly memorable, but nor is it particularly dependent on the prevailing fashion at, the, at that moment for the kind of Mersey beat vocals. It's a reasonably good song in its own right, but it's poppy. It's not deep. It's just a, a poppy vocal track. You know, a bit of uh, light relief. Yeah. Well, we talked about Foot Tapper, and as you mentioned, this is the album version, which I, I guess Bruce considered kind of a sketch before the finished product. Yeah. How do you feel about this album version compared to the single? It's interesting. And I mean, some people, I know some people who play Shadows tunes sometimes like to play. It's mainly the, the difference... Apart from the recording, the difference musically is mainly in that little descending phrase in the middle, da, 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 da. Uh, instead of playing it as double stops, as he did in the, the single release, Hank plays as separate notes. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Uh,
that's the main difference. And I know some people still do play it that way, but you get used to the to the single version because it's a, probably a slightly better recording. There's more definition to it. But I, mean, I could happily listen to anyone. And the discovery that this was what we now would call an alternate version or an alternative version was, was quite a discovery. Uh, that wasn't very common back in 1963 to have alternate takes or alternate versions of, of, of numbers. You know, it's funny, because I'm an American and these records were very difficult to come by, I had to take what I could get, you know, when it came to Shadows music, and I got things in dribs and drabs over the years. And the version I'm most familiar with of Foot Tapper is the version from the Summer Holiday album, because that's the only one I had for the longest time. It's only within the past few years or so that I was able to get all of this Shadows material on import. So I don't have those years of familiarity with the single version. You know, I'm getting everything in one fell swoop. (laughs) Exactly. So we'll move on to another song from the Summer Holiday soundtrack. In fact, when Darren Price was on the show, Jim Nugent, I think, said the same thing. A lot of Shadows fans say the same thing, that the song Round and Round should have been a single. I would agree with that. I think it's a tremendous number. In fact, for about 20 years, I played in a part-time amateur Shadows band. And for the last 10 years, I think round and round, when we did play a, a, a gig, round and round was the number we opened with because it's got a really good driving beat. It's got a good feel to it. I think it's probably, a yeah, I wouldn't disagree that it would have made a better single in some respects than Foot Tapper. It's a great rocky number and it brings, I know Jim was talking about the transition in the Shadows sound and this this is kind of in the middle. It's it's got the elements of the the rocky Shadows sound. It's also got quite a, a nice smooth lead sound and it looks great in the film because they've got this little French nightclub set up with Lee Shadows playing uh, you know, there was no attempt to make reality intrude into this film. Uh, the fact that this person who looked remarkably like Cliff Richard was driving a London bus around Europe and bumped into <laughs> the country's leading instrumental group, you know, just don't worry about it. Just let it let it flow, let it go over you, and that's it. Uh, but that scene, it, it, it's just that's the reason I watched the film about six times in a row, just to see that little nightclub scene and see the, see the band. I think I persuaded my mother that I really needed a black polo neck sweater after that. <laughs> so we'll wrap up with the other song that's heard in the film for more than 30 seconds, like Foot Dapper, and that's uh, Lay Girls.
League of Heroes, yeah. It's a nice wee song. Uh, and again, there's an extended version of the, the film soundtrack because you've got Teddy Green doing a fantastic dance routine. But it's, it's, it's a jolly little sort of, yeah, it is League of Heroes. It kind of uh, sums up the atmosphere in the, in the scene. And it's a well-written uh, number. And like Round and Round, you've got uh, a Marvin Welch and Bennett uh, credit for both of those, uh, which is uh, which is seeing Brian being brought into the composing team. Brian became quite a major influence in their writing. He wasn't just a very good drummer; he was a very talented musician generally, and still is. But yeah, I, I like Lee Girls. It's a jolly little one. Maybe it's it's not quite as catchy as either Foot Tapper or Round and Round. It's certainly not as easy. I found it wasn't as easy to, to replicate it when we were playing in the band, but it's still a good number. Speaking of good numbers, let's talk about the single Shindig backed with It's Been a Blue Day. Now, this was also, as I mentioned, everything we're talking about today was released in September of 63. Shindig was recorded August 9th, 63. And again, it's Marvin and Welch writing this. You know, the first time I put it on and listened to it. I thought, oh, they're covering Jailhouse Rock. It's quickly become one of my favorites. I think it might be in my top 10 favorite Shadows tracks at this point. I don't know if it's as well-loved today as other classics like FBI and Apache, though. It's got all the trademarks. It's got all the hallmarks. Uh, and Hank uses some nice uh, double stops and things like that uh, in the melody. Mm. Uh, again, coming back to the kind of environment that, that the record business was at the moment when this was released. It might seem slightly dated, it's certainly to generations who came after it, it would seem slightly dated. It's a nice, jolly little tune, but maybe not as memorable as a lot of the other stuff that recorded. But, you know, it, it was a hit and they, they played it live and uh, it's still remembered. Uh, there's a group named after it, one of our rock and roll bands over here. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not the most memorable thing they ever recorded, but it's pretty much in the, the Shadows mainstream. I still like it. I still like listening to it. So we'll flip this record over, and we get to Brian Bennett's It's Been a Blue Day. And now this was yep. recorded in late 62, December 21st, 62. I don't know why it was hanging around so long, but um, okay. So I've already said on this show that Peace Pipe is my favorite Shadows track. Yeah. Foot Tappers, the single version, is up there as well. Also this. To me, this is a masterpiece. And this is going to sound strange, what I'm about to say. <laughs> but um, the melody here, the, the Hank plays this melody, and it's, Hank sounds like a clarinet. This is a classic melody. I feel like I could hear Benny Goodman do this.
could have been a swing number. Yeah. Bit of a tempo change. Yeah, I agree with you absolutely. It's a really, really nice number. It's 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 a nice number to listen to. It's quite a nice number to play. It's got a lovely minor phrase in it uh, where it goes up three semitones and then back down one in the introduction. And I think that's an indication that Brian was mm-hmm. coming from a slightly different. He had he had done his training uh, in in arranging. He'd done his mail order course. Not that he was incorporating that kind of thing into his writing very early on. It's quite a sophisticated tune. Could it have been an A side? Maybe not strong enough in terms of the instant catchiness that you need for a lot of instrumentals because you don't have words to pick up on. You've got to have some kind of catchy hook. But it's it's a solo grind composition. It's got Nori Paramore doing a lovely arrangement. Uh, or maybe Brian helped with the arrangement. I don't know the details of that. But yeah, I mean, if you look back to Shindig and you get that drum beat, boom, and then the, the introduction starts, your ear catches on that. This is a more gentle, it, it, it brings you into it gradually. I'm waving my hands here, which is pointless, <laughs> uh, in an audio call. But yeah, it, it brings it brings you into it more gradually. And it's this slightly melancholy little melody that, it, that, that he's written, which is uh, which sticks in your, your brain. But it's a slower process than the E-side. So we'll, we're going to move on to the EP, yeah. the main feature, Los Shadows. Yep. And all of this was recorded around the same time of uh, April of 63, while the group were in Barcelona recording the When in Spain album. Yes. With Cliff. So here we go, released in September of 63. I'm going to do okay, I think, with some of these titles. But the uh, EP cover I'm most familiar with is this one where... It's really a photo of Cliff in the shadows, but they've just taken Cliff out of it. He was standing in the middle, and they just have this um, logo of the shadows on top of where Cliff was standing. You see, that, that, that is the alternate cover. Ah, okay. The main cover, the cover I had, has a, has a picture of the four of them standing under a kind of, looks like a straw gazebo or a lean-to, uh, a typical Spanish hacienda. Uh, Bruce has one foot on a chair and strumming what looks like a flamenco guitar, judging by the scratch plate. Hank is clapping his hands, and Brian, the two Brians are leaning on a post, both wearing Spanish hats, and there's a sombrero on the, the floor. That, to my knowledge, was the main photograph. That's certainly the one that I bought uh, all those years ago. The other one I tend to regard as being the sort of secondary, the alternate, later, maybe a later pressing, I don't know. It's not the first time Cliff was cut out of a Shadows EP cover, though. Yes, I know. Because <laughs> the Shadows, that that first EP of new tracks, he was crouching down at the front and that as well. And once again, he was tastefully blocked out so they could concentrate on Shadows. Yeah. That was recorded, as you say, in Barcelona at the same time as the Cliff and the Shadows session. So track one is Granada, yep. written by Augustine Lara? Augustine Lara, uh, yes. yes. So this is a song from the 19... 19- Thanks for your help here, because I'm going to need it. This is a song from the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been vocal versions. Many vocal uh, Frankie, versions. Frankie Lane, right, and Frank Sinatra, yep. and all, all the Franks. 
Fascinating tale you would tell. two favorites on this EP, and this is one of them. And you know, the added strings, the Nori Paramore strings, and the brass on here calls to mind, and I don't know if it was an influence, but it calls to mind the sound of the Tijuana Brass. And Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass had a big hit record, certainly in America. I mean, it was a huge, massive hit called The Lonely Bull in late 62. And it was this combination of a rock beat with a brass band that was just so infectious. And I know the Shadows recorded a version of The Lonely Bull. Mm -hmm. They may have been more inspired by the Ventures cover of The Lonely Bull. But um, I wonder if that was an influence or, you know, they are in Spain and uh, maybe not Tijuana, but they're in Spain and they're picking up uh, sounds that way, which would make uh, logical sense. Anyway, what do you think of Granada? It's a classic number. I mean, it's, it's been recorded as a kind of pop standard. It's been recorded by, you know, operatic tenors and people like that because you can, you can really uh, belt it out if you've got a, a good strong voice. It's it's interesting because I, the first time I think I heard them actually play it was on a television programme in the UK called Thank Your Lucky Stars. And they played it sitting down, wearing sort of Spanish waistcoats and wearing the black Spanish-style hats. And I can remember my dad coming into the room and so, sort of, you know, he made kind of approving noises, <laughs> as, as fathers do when they come in and see you listening to some of your favourite music. And it's a very strong version, I think, as an instrumental. It works really well. The change of tempo and all that works really well as as a guitar instrumental. Yeah, agreed. Next up, we have Adios Muchachos, written by Julian Sanders. And this is a song that dates back to the 1930s. In fact, Xavier Cugat and his orchestra had a hit in 1935 with this song. And I'm familiar with that version, but I'm warming to this one, I have to say. It might be a little anticlimactic coming after the majesty of Granada, though.
Yeah, again, it was a vocal number. Uh, Pablo the Dreamer is the, is the title of the vocal version. Uh, Adios Muchachos, uh, with my limited Spanish, I can remember, is like goodbye friends. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it means. Yeah, it, it, it's a nice tune. I'll say it's a nice tune. They do a good version of it. But coming right after the kind of the strength of Granada, it's it's maybe not quite as impressive. I can uh, I take your point in that. I don't recall, apart from television appearances to mime to Granada, I can't remember them ever playing any of these tracks in a live situation. I don't know if there was a reason for that or it's just a case of this was something that was done at the end of the cliff sessions and they thought this would be a, a nice package to put out. But uh, I'm actually looking at the back of the EP just now and there are two photographs. One is Bruce taking a photograph of the other three and the other one is the four of them practising in the boring at sieges. Uh, and the text is given in English and in Spanish. Uh, as far as I can tell, it's reasonably correct. But yeah. So, but it's, very, you know, it's the kind of like, look, we're in Spain, folks. We recorded this in Spain. Right. <laughs> Just in the case you thought we were speaking, right. this was actually, you know, we were in Spain. Right. We uh, really did soak up the atmosphere. You're going to hear it yeah. on this EP. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So cut three, we flip this EP over, we get to cut three. Next to <clears throat> next to Granada, this is my favorite cut on the album. Yeah. It's Valencia, Jose Padilla, I think. Padilla? Padilla. Yeah. yeah. Padilla. And, and this is the return of that famous galloping rhythm that we used to hear on earlier Shadows recordings. Yep. And I absolutely love this. <laughs> It's an absolute cracker. I mean, it, it goes along at a tremendous pace. Again, it's a vocal being done as an instrumental, but it, it, it's such a good... It, again, it could have made a single. Yeah. It, it was, I think it was strong enough. Either Granada or Valencia could have, could have been singles. Yeah. Uh, whether the market would have responded uh, in the way they would have hoped, I don't know. But it's a really strong track. And again... It never seems to have featured in the stage repertoire after that. They may well have played it on other television programs to promote it, but I have no record of that. A, a missed opportunity, certainly, yeah. but we'll get to the last cut on this EP, Los Tres Carabellas. Galleons. Three galleons. I, I believe it's referring to the Nina the Pinta and the Santa Maria. Uh, Santa Maria. It is yes. indeed. I've, I've seen the, the lyric for it. It is indeed uh, referring to Columbus and his uh, 
there's three ships, there's three little, little galleons. I would put it quite high up. I, I would put it maybe as, as the third out of the four because it is a nice laid-back uh, instrumental version of, uh, of the song. The string accompaniment in particular, I think, is really nice in this. And Hank's sound is that pure Fender lead, which we all know and love. For a slower tempo, it's, it's, a, strong, it's a strong number. Yeah, the shadows really excel at these languid ballads that are very evocative. In fact, this whole EP is evocative. That's what I wanted to mention. You know, you've got the arrangements that the shadows have come up with for these songs, and then you've got Nori Paramore's uh, string arrangements and his orchestra arrangements, and together they're very cinematic. I mean, you put these songs on, and you can envision exactly what uh, you know the songs are are relaying to you. Mm-hmm. You don't mm-hmm. necessarily need to see photos of the shadows dressed up, you know, on the EP cover. I, the music is enough. Yeah, and where they can include orchestral accompaniment, which isn't just bolted on as, oh, let's put the orchestra in here, which actually integrates with the sound. And you hear that very well on Lost Shadows, as you did on It's Been a Blue Day, that they integrate the quartet, the two guitars, bass and drums, with the string orchestra, and it works beautifully. And, you know, that's a lot of talent on both sides of that. You know, we, we shouldn't underestimate that by the time they were recording this stuff, they were they were maturing, and they were mature as musicians. Yeah, most definitely. And we've mentioned it all throughout the show. This is September of 63. All of this stuff comes out in September of 63, and Britain is in the grips of Beatlemania. It would soon happen in the U.S. the following year. And comparatively... While the shadows may not have the energy of the young Beatles at this time, I, I think if you compare the material, I think that this, the Lost Shadows EP, and some of the tracks we talked about today, are more sophisticated musically. I, again, I think it, it, you're at the cusp of this change that, that's that's happening in the, in the general uh, music world, particularly in, in, in the UK with the Beatles and the Hollies and Searchers, all these other bands. Uh, and it would have been easy for the Shadows to say, all right, correct, we'll dump the instrumentals uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll start doing a lot more vocals. But they didn't. <clears throat> they, they stuck to their own, their own path. It manifested itself in diminishing chart returns, but they could still pack out either on their own or with Cliff, they could pack out theatres, no problem. And in those days, we thought if we got 25 minutes of The Shadows at the end of the first half and 25 minutes of Cliff and The Shadows at the end of the second half, we went home happy because they were variety shows. Bands, bands didn't play, you know, two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour sets. They played 25 minutes uh, on average. We were lucky because we got to see the shadows twice in the, in the one concert. But you know, the Beatles started doing; they did variety tours with supporting artists and you know, comedians and that sort of thing. But one of the most significant things that was said by someone in the Shadows family uh, about the arrival of the Beatles was that they 
surprised everybody because they weren't show busy. And by 1963, the shadows were part of show business. They were playing to family audiences. They weren't quite at the stage of doing the pantomimes at the Palladium, but they, they were getting close to that. And mainstream popular music was going in a different direction, but they were establishing something which was essentially the shadows. They, they could still, and would continue to do for another, at least till the end of the 60s, pack out theatres. So, uh, but their music had, not evolved in the way that general pop music had evolved. Now, that's not a bad thing, but, you know, I'm sure they, they have sometimes ex expressed regret about decisions that were taken by them or on their behalf about the direction the music was going. Well, like I said earlier, I'm hearing all of this music out of context. You know, I'm hearing it all in one big serving, and it's just incredible. This stuff is built to last yeah yeah so george where can people go to catch up with your shadow-esque activities online right i'm one of the administrators for the shadow music website uh, and i crop up on all the uh, the shadows groups on facebook uh, i write for pipeline magazine as well uh, as, as, as some of my colleagues do but yeah, you can get hold of me through shadowmusic.co.uk. Once again, my thanks to George Geddes for appearing on the show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Next month, we're back to Barcelona with our guest Robert Porter as we discuss the Cliff in the Shadows album, When in Spain. And you'll really enjoy hearing me stumble over those titles. Um, yeah, that'll be next month on the show. Please rate us over on Apple Music slash iTunes, whatever you want to call it. it. It's really appreciated. It helps to get the show out there, and it increases its visibility. You can send me an email. It's we say yeah podcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter. It's we say yeah pod. Join us on Facebook. That's really where all the action is. It's um, we say yeah over on Facebook. We'll be back next month, but for you folks binge listening, I guess it'll be a matter of moments. No, no, not the song. I don't mean this. That, that's coming next year. All right. <laughs> Take care. We say yeah. We say yeah. We say yeah.